0: Welcome back to another episode of Trashy Divorces. This time we have a song that launched a million drunk drivers. <laughs>
1: <laughs> we do really have quite an episode this week. Oh, the great di- episode.
0: The song I'm qu- I'm skeptical of. I don't think it's aged quite as well as we'd like. The divorce
1: count is high it on is, this one. It's huh. very high. One for my baby, one for the road. There mm-hmm. are so many divorces. Stacy, you have the...
0: Oh, the funniest guy in the world. Johnny Carson, who had three Trashy Divorces, four marriages... Like, I
1: love him, but boy, was his life a mess. And you... Oh, I have the trashy arc of marriages and the spider web that is Ava Gardner's early marriages to Mickey Rooney and Artie Shaw, her marriages before Frank Sinatra, and some Lana Turner cupcakes thrown in just to make it all better. I mean, why not? Our theme song for the week, one for my baby, one more for the road is a hit song. It was written by Harold Arlen and our hometown Savannah boy, and Johnny, Johnny Mercer. Mercer. It was originally written for the musical called The Sky's the Limit in 1943.
0: And please do not have one more for the road.
1: No, call Uber. Yeah, y'all. call, call u- or lift Uber, or Lyft, whatever. Taxi, whatever. What All else? right, so this was first performed in the film by Fred Astaire and was further popularized by our boy Frank. Many, many times he covered this. Mm-hmm. Like, go find your own favorite version I'm a fan of Frank's. It's going to be on our website. I did also add to our link references. Mm-hmm. The a, cu- a couple others. By Etta James and Ella Fitzgerald and Billie Holiday. Oh, yeah. Let, let us know which one you prefer. Oh, God. They're all so good. Yeah. If you want to pour a drink and run through all of those versions and then Uber home. Yeah. It's a great idea.
0: Drink optional. Alicia, we have we have a big magic mirror this week because we have had a, an influx of lovely people supporting the podcast on Patreon. I think
1: people really dig Frank Sinatra yes. and the 12 Degrees. Who knew? Many thanks to all of our new patrons this week. Y'all are amazing. Thanks for supporting us over there. And we hope you are finding so much pleasure in the <laughs> trash candy universe. Who's in our magic mirror? Stacey, start us off.
0: Starting us off, we have, with great thanks, Angela F., Anais Nin, Maria B., Jessica L, Dawn S, Kimberly, Candace W, Marlo, Tanya H, and Nancy
1: B. Natalie H, Elena S, Christine N, Karen G, EHS, Larissa C, Melissa G, Helen C, and Lauren. Y'all are amazing. Totally. And we have Henry, Aaron
0: W, Jenna D, Rebecca, Haley S, Kristen W, Ariana L, Catherine R., Liz M., Sophie
1: B., Magical, all of you, Jennifer H., Brandy H., Maddie A., Christy P., Carrie S., Patty B., Brooke B.L., Catherine B., Danielle D., Vanessa S. Wowza! Thank you. To all of our new and returning Trash Pandas over there, you are literally the best community in the world and we could not be more grateful. True story. A few other shout out thank yous to the kids who are all right. We've got some really special youths in the world who are rooting for us and we're rooting for them. We want to give a big shout out to... We do. Alex, Catherine, Jacob, Simon, we love you. Y'all rock. Keep it trashy. All right, let's set them up, Stacey. I think you got a story I think we all should know. Are you ready to go?
0: Go. Go? Pour another drink. Because it rhymes with no.
1: (laughs) Which is what we should have said after the last (laughs) drink on Thursday. All right, let's do this. All right. And tonight with the trashy divorces of the king of late night comedy. Here's Stacy! (laughs) Woohoo! All right,
0: so I will admit that Johnny Carson was a dirtbag that I will always love. It's just how it is. True. Sometimes we get comments that people would love our podcast if we weren't so biased, but you know what? It's our
1: podcast and we are biased, so... So Johnny Um, Carson's a dirtbag?
0: He was... He was a dog. Was I know a he
1: kind of was mid-range in the level of tra- man. He was a
0: Lothario. He, he cheated up a storm. There's a sex tape floating around from no. like the 60s or 70s. Yeah. Spill it. Sure. <laughs> so as noted, Johnny Carson was the undisputed king of late night for three decades. He took the helm of The Tonight Show in 62. And he held that chair until 1992. Wow. And when I was a kid, I loved nothing more than staying up until after the local news ended at 1030 Central Time Zone. (laughs) And The Tonight Show came on with Ed McMahon's voice welcoming the audience with his famous Here's Johnny catchphrase, followed by Carson's monologue that just popped with zingers. It was... Oh, it was so cool as a kid. Johnny Carson
1: was a very funny man.
0: He was a very, very funny man. And so, yeah, 80s, early 90s, like, I... uh, It was so much fun. Okay. He was a beloved figure in American life. And under his stewardship, The Tonight Show became television's hottest commodity. NBC was pulling in the equivalent of $200 million a year and more from it. Wow. For its first decade, it was recorded at 30 Rock in New York... And Carson had this, like, persona as a Rat Pack-era urban sophisticate. I will have to take reporter's words for this, because episodes from that first decade were not preserved. It was standard practice for networks back then to, to use and reuse their masters. They would just tape over the same tape.
1: Oh, my.
0: So it isn't until... really. Mm-hmm. Also, like, Doctor Who's early 1960s episodes, many of them are missing for the same reasons BBC just reused... Tape. They just didn't realize, like, gosh, people might want to check this out in the 2020s.
1: (laughs) Meet the fucking Jetsons. Mm -hmm.
0: Tape was expensive. I mean, digital stuff. This is the only reason podcasting happens is because digital happened. Yeah. There's no way we could afford tape to do this. Fair point. Okay. So, yeah, it isn't until the show relocated to Los Angeles uh, in the early 70s that they started to save the footage. Johnny wanted better access to the Hollywood stars who made the show work. <laughs> so moving to Burbank made sense. His personal life, for all of his, all of just enormous world topping success, his personal life was a complete mess.
1: Mm.
0: He was apparently profoundly introverted. He was basically absent as a figure in the New York and Hollywood social scene. He married four times and all three of his divorces played out during the run of The Tonight Show, Ah, which maybe, maybe is a, that those things may matter to each other. He was The Tonight Show and until his last marriage, during which he retired from The Tonight Show, this was the only outlet that ever endured for him. This was a fascinating quote, screenwriter George Axelrod once said of Carson, as relayed in a 1978 New Yorker profile, quote, Socially, he doesn't exist. The reason is that there are no television cameras in living rooms. If human beings had little red lights in the middle of their foreheads, (laughs) Carson would be the greatest conversationalist on earth. Like,
1: (laughs) what a quote.
0: When he died, I want to say like he had like this 14 room mansion, but there was only one bedroom. And if you were a guest and planned to stay the night, there was a guest house across the road. That's the way to do it, yo. Oh, sure. But I mean, that's just like, he was that, pr- like he had a mansion, but you had to sleep in a different building.
1: <laughs> he just, Interesting. That was
0: just not his thing. Complicated guy. So let's talk about Johnny Carson. He was born in Corning, Iowa on October 23rd, 1925. He's a Scorpio. huh Got anything to say about that? Super intensely private, but can read the room like nobody's business, Dominant, done,
1: Dunn, yeah. Yeah.
0: Okay, so he grew up mostly in Norfolk, Nebraska, which his family moved to when he was eight. I love what I'm about to tell you. So when he was 12, little baby Johnny Carson writes away for a mail order magician's kit. And he kicks off his career as an <laughs> entertainer by performing card tricks for his family. Nice. And apparently for a few years there... All he would, like, his catchphrase was, pick a card, any card. he just follow family members around. Pick a card, any card. Oh, Johnny, little Johnny Carson. <laughs> little baby Johnny. Weirdly, this worked out. So when he was around 14, his mom sewed him a cape. And keep in mind, this is like the tail end of the Depression at this point. Like, they've been through it. This family's been through it. They started in Iowa. They end up in Nebraska. The Depression has happened. <laughs> like, it's bad times. Mom, sh- mom sews Johnny a cape. And the local Kiwanis Club pays him three dollars to come and do magic, sh- to do a little magic show as the <laughs> the great Carsoni. <gasps> no, well, fourteen. He is so skinny, even as like an adult, as even as like an older adult man. Like he must have been just
1: adorable
0: just adorable. Mm-hmm. Hmm. um so the great carsoni i feel must have contributed to his later karnak the magnificent persona on the tonight show oh for sure yeah so i'm not kidding here though hey follow your bliss yeah the great carsoni was an entertainment force to be reckoned with in nebraska <laughs> in the 30s and early 40s he played county fairs like local picnics, like wherever would have him. He was there with his cape, with his cards, doing magic tricks. He was, he was Barney Stinson, but but dorkier,
1: adorkable.
0: <laughs> oh boy. Okay. So there's also a story that he graduated from high school and hitchhiked to Hollywood, and there was arrested for impersonating a midshipman, which is, like, I don't know if the story is true because. World War II was raging and he did enlist in the Navy and did become a midshipman. 1943 after training he's assigned to the USS Pennsylvania where he is tasked with decoding encrypted messages in the Pacific theater. What? And yeah, he never saw combat like they were they were steaming their way toward combat in the Pacific when, you know, we dropped a couple of, of atomic bombs and on Turn those boats around. Yeah but he did have the opportunity to do a magic trick for the secretary of the navy during his time on this boat and this i think was a big confidence builder because the secretary of navy was like no one's fool and had just been through years of like leading a war <laughs> anyway just weird stuff right the great carsoni popping up pick a card yeah right yeah exactly <laughs> mr secretary Pick a card, any card. Oh, my God. (laughs) All right. So the war ends. He returns to civilian life, heads back to Nebraska to go to college in Lincoln. And fun fact, I did a spoken word show in Lincoln, Nebraska, like 10 or 15 years ago, and it was awful. Oh, (laughs) no. Total bomb. It's a big military town. We
1: did not... A dreadlocked well. performance poet was not a success it in was, a uh, military town. Unexpected. <laughs> uh,
0: so Johnny starts as a journalism major with a plan to to be a comedy writer. Like this guy knew what he wanted to do from go right. So midway through, he changes his major to drama because he decides like, oh, the radio is where I can really make my mark. Okay. He writes a thesis. Oh my god, his thesis was called "How to Write Comedian Jokes." <laughs> it was not it was more interestingly his thesis was audio and he took radio jokes radio skits an integra- new And new technology man and he, and he dissected them like he explained the comedic theory behind like why this worked or didn't work and he graduated a year early yeah. that's cool as hell so yeah he was an early podcaster it turns out <laughs> Okay, so yeah, graduates in three years, kicks around the Omaha radio scene for a couple of years. And uh, I love this. One of his bits there was he would, I, I, he was probably in a studio, but he would, I'm air quoting, he would go out to the courthouse and interview pigeons on the rooftop about all the corruption downstairs. <laughs> <laughs> <clears throat> Truly love Johnny Carson. 1951, Johnny Carson gets to Hollywood for real this time, and he joins Red Skelton's writing team after a couple years. Oh, wow. He guest-hosted on the show after Red Skelton apparently knocked himself unconscious during rehearsals one day. What? And this leads him to, you know, an appearance on Jack Benny's show. He gets sent to New York in the late 50s where he hosts a daytime game show, which is where he meets Ed McMahon, his sidekick for the rest of Ed's life. Right. The daytime game show became a monster success. I think it was on ABC though. So like, anyway, but the networks see him and they have plans because Johnny Carson just has that thing that, that unidentifiable, unquantifiable thing. They just, it makes it impossible not to watch. And a cape. And somewhere in the back of a closet, a cape. Okay. So let's back up, though, because Johnny was not doing all this stuff alone. Oh.
1: In 1949,
0: while he was still a student, he got married for the first time to Jody Walcott. She was 21 and studying art at University of Nebraska when they met. She would later recall that on their first date, he was, quote, cold, aloof, and distant. <laughs> <clears throat> How'd he get a second date? Yeah, this actually tracks with descriptions of him throughout his life, but... Something clicked, and she agreed to be his assistant in his magic act. I'm not kidding. He's Barney fucking Stinson, okay? (laughs) After they married, he just turned himself into your standard, like, 1950s workaholic who was pretty much absent, who pretty much turned into the guy who's having a lot of affairs.
1: Oh.
0: Yeah. Also, he drank heavily during this part of his life. Oh. And it seems like later he would do better about the excessive drinking but you know at this point i don't know she says he was a very very nasty drunk and would get violent with her from time to time oh no after he'd been drinking and then like he'd get up early the next morning and leave with that like he would just they had three kids together so he was it sounds like he was a crap husband and a crap father Yikes. i'm not sure if that really distinguishes him in a 1950s household though Like, it's, right, it's sad to think about all that. So by 1957, they had moved from L.A. to New York, and the family was living in this big house in Harrison, New York. Johnny's hosting this game show, Who Do You Trust? (laughs) Not Johnny. And Jody Jody has taken to seeing a psychiatrist. Oh. Hard to imagine. (laughs) Oh, Oh. And the psychiatrist is like, look... This is not you are. This is not increasing your happiness, and you should divorce this guy.
1: Really mm-hmm. interesting. Yeah, when the therapist tells you to go,
0: yeah. So she has that conversation with him. Apparently, he was enraged, but by 1959, he had moved out. It took them four years to actually divorce, but and she had to go to Mexico to make it happen because New York divorce law was crazy until 2010. Mexican divorce count number Uh, one. Yes. Yes. It's the only one of Johnny Carson's Mexican divorces, but I understand our show I have one.
1: I have one coming.
0: Okay. So she gets a divorce in Chihuahua, Mexico in 1963. (gasps) She was granted $15,000 a year for alimony, $7,500 a year in child support, and she would earn 15% of his earnings over $100,000 in
1: perpetuity. That's not shabby.
0: That is not shabby, particularly given what's coming. Like at the time, in 1963, he had just taken over tonight and he had not yet rocketed it to the moon, but it's coming. All right. So she really struggled with her own mental health, like during this period. Obviously, she was seeing a psychiatrist before the divorce. Afterwards, she had panic attacks. These were not helped by Johnny, apparently continually threatening to sue for custody of their children. And she ended actually up in a psych hospital for three weeks and then in a halfway house uh, just to have, like, greater supervision, I think, for over a year. She was suicidal. It was not good.
1: That's a number.
0: Yeah. It was It was not good. Even worse, by 1970, he had just kind of forgotten that whole 15% over $100,000 thing. Oh, no. But she was ready to get married again. Like, she had met someone. It was going well. And so rather than fight him over that 15%, she had her lawyer work out a lump sum payment of 160000 plus $13,500 a year until 1999. Nope. Yeah. So in 1990, Jody brought him back to court. She was claiming, I don't know that this was substantiated in court, but she was claiming that she was nearly indigent and that basically he had... Cheated her out of literally millions and millions of dollars. For sure.
1: Mm -hmm. 15% of his net.
0: Yeah. Yeah, yeah, totally. So anyway, that case failed because she had remarried in 1970. And even though that marriage ended in divorce, the judge was like, well, under the law, I mean, if you need more support, your second husband
1: is the the one one you go to. right?"
0: So there were a bunch of sad things that kind of came out around this story in nineteen ninety. The biggest being that all three of the boys, which are Johnny Carson's only three children. So all three of her sons were estranged from her at that point. Mm. And um, yeah, it's very sad. Also, as far as I can tell, she is still alive. She would be in her 90s now, but she did say in 1990, like, I worry about my future because women in my family live to be really old. So that appears to be happening. Hopefully Jody's doing well. So that is divorce number 1. Okay. And and the aftermath of divorce number anyway. One up, one down. One one up. Yeah, a few to go. Months after his first marriage ended in 1963, he married Joanne Copeland, a model he had begun dating in New York in 1960 after separating from Jody. As a first date, Johnny invited her to come up to his apartment and watch comedy clips of himself, <laughs> to which she said she replied Is this a new way of saying, come up and see my etchings? Oh. (laughs) She said he blushed bright red, but she did go to the apartment, and a few years later, they were married. She was there for his meteoric rise to the king of late night, as well as career highs like opening for the Rat Pack at the 1965 Frank Sinatra Spectacular in St. Louis, which was televised and can be found on YouTube, and it's a very funny little
1: five-minute opening set. It's a... Special little slice of magic.
0: Yeah, it's good. Uh, His hair is still dark at that performance, which is interesting because it, I mean, never was in my lifetime. And uh, it's just like weird and cool. to Like, he's got that smile. Like, he's got this like million megawatt smile and he is fully amused by what he's saying and how the audience is reacting. It's just, I mean, it's again, he's just got that thing.
1: Yeah, I stumbled across that clip wine tipsy one night and just, hey, that's Johnny Wait, Frank Sinatra. What? You'll have it on the website. I will we'll add yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Perfect. We'll add it to show notes. No, I've got a bunch. I've. Uh, I'll.
0: We'll get to it later. But I've. I've also got a clip of um, Frank Sinatra on the Tonight Show in 1976, and Don Rickles surprises him, and they have a. It's just a funny. It's just funny. All these people have known each other for, ever at this point, and, and it shows. All Johnny right.
1: Carson is like cotton. He's the fabric of our lives. <laughs>
0: All right, so he and Joanne stuck it out until 1970, but apparently both were highly opinionated people with bad tempers.
1: Oh, that never works. Hmm.
0: Yeah, not in the long term. I mean, it's, yeah. So their divorce was a very lengthy matter, uh, lasting a couple of years, and the settlement gave her half a million dollars, just a lump sum up front. Plus a hundred thousand dollars in alimony until she remarried or one of them died.
1: That's, I mean, that's fair.
0: Yeah. Oh, more than. Yeah. So she leaves New York before Johnny did and returned to her native Los Angeles, which he then moved his show to.
1: <laughs>
0: and both would separately spend the rest of their lives there. I don't, I don't know that they didn't talk or like. When he died, there were she. Like, she was interviewed about him. Like, I I don't know. I don't know if they maybe intermittently were friends. I, I don't know. There's reason to think he stayed invested in her, though. So she remarried, uh, but that marriage didn't work out. And Wikipedia says that she continued receiving alimony from Johnny until his death in 05, which, again, she remarried, which would cancel that. So I'm thinking that he really did just sort of affirmatively take care of her for the remainder of her life. Okay. Interestingly, so after she divorced him, she became very close to the writer Truman Capote, who you have devoted quite a bit of time to in your Fun With Dunn series over on the Patreon. We have we've talked about him and he's gonna come back up again, believe it or not. So Well fun fun fact about old Truman um, he died at her home. He maintained a writing room in her home. And he died there in 1984.
1: Yes, he did. They were very good friends, and he had sort of hit definitely a rock bottom. Yeah, like
0: he'd burned all his bridges in New York and all of his sort of
1: place social ties. So, I'll pick up a little bit of up on that this week on Patreon.
0: Head to the left coast, they said.
1: <laughs> Poor Truman Company. You
0: definitely won't die there. They said
1: he was on a 20-year road to yeah. self-destruction. But interesting guy that will be coming back around again on the on the guitar in the trashy Patreon universe.
0: All right, so that is two down, one divorce and one marriage that lasts until he dies to go. Once again, Johnny wasted no time in moving on. When a 10th anniversary party was held for The Tonight Show in September 1972, he stepped up to the microphone to inform partygoers that he had married 32-year-old model Joanna Holland that afternoon. Causing quite a stir. Whoa. This was Joanna's second marriage. And after her first divorce in 66, she got into modeling because she had a son to support. After the marriage, Johnny's lawyers drew up a prenup, which she was happy enough to sign. Totally makes sense. But Johnny afterwards pulled the lawyer aside and said, you need to destroy that. I'm in love.
1: (sighs) Oh, Johnny. I mean,
0: I think they were. Which is terribly wonderful. I think he was every time he got married. I do think that. He just was unable to be faithful. And he was in the middle of Hollywood, so.
1: Put it in your pants, man.
0: Okay. After just over a decade together and reportedly a ton of Johnny's philandering, she filed for divorce in 83. After another
1: two years of. definitely got a decade lock on Mm. that shiz, doesn't he?
0: Yeah, after another two years of negotiations, that's also kind of the time frame of his divorces, Joanna got a bunch of property and a cool $20 million in cash.
1: That's a high cry from the last divorce. Mm
0: -hmm. I believe that Joanna is also still alive. Um, So, all right. In 1987, he married for the last time. Alexis Mass was 27 years younger than he was, but this one actually seemed to work. Oh, good. They were married for the rest of his life. And there are plenty of smiling photographs of them in the stands at tennis matches from the years after he retired from tonight in May of nineteen ninety
1: two and you had a I have a fun thing, yeah, but Miller... about him and his retirement, our theme song this week, one for my baby, and one more for the road, was used in his penultimate episode. Of the Tonight Show, which aired on May twenty first, nineteen ninety two, Bette Midler comes on, sings one more for my baby with some revised lyrics. With you know Johnny, and you're getting ready to close, and it's very emotional. Everyone cries. It wins Bette Midler the Emmy for Outstanding Individual Performance in a Variety or Musical Program. Wow, just a little. A little tidbit that connects the...
0: Yeah, I didn't realize. yeah
1: spider, spider webs, spider webs in fedoras.
0: Yeah, so, it, yeah, the first five years or whatever of his fourth marriage, he was on tonight. And then for the remaining 13 some years, fun. yeah, they were, he was retired, super rich. Pick a card. Yeah, <laughs> pick a card. <laughs> and yeah, I mean, it really does. I mean, his health declined at the end, but it... Seems like they had a really happy marriage. So he died from complications from emphysema in '05. So I know that it was just last week that I was railing about the great man myth and how it, you know, taints everything. And this story is sort of a case in point. There are endless easily available news stories out there about Johnny Carson from throughout his career, while his four wives are considerably more obscure. So my apologies to all of them for not having a more thorough look at their lives. I just literally couldn't find a ton of info about them. One thing that really jumped out at me in this story is how it shows the shifting nature of divorce law during the later part of the 20th century. Divorce was rare and usually left the wife in financial shambles prior to the post-war period. But as women sought and earned a greater economic role, views on the dissolution of the marital estate shifted as well. So the 1963 divorce happened in Mexico because New York divorce law is super tough. Chihuahua. Yeah, like she gets 15,000 a year, although worth noting the median US household income in 1960 was about 5600, so well above. Yeah, oh, she would fantastic. have been quite comfortable. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And if he had followed through on the percentage of his future earnings and she had not negotiated that away in 1970,
1: sweet lord. I mean, yeah. Yeah.
0: However, you know, like a decade later, his second wife, Joanne, gets a half million dollars up front.
1: Substantial difference. And
0: $100,000 a year. So by this time, the median household income in the U.S. for 1970 had almost doubled to just under $10,000 a year. And she's got, wow. hmm
1: Comfy. Com- very comfortable. Comfy
0: is the word. A decade or so further, Joanna walks away with $20 million in homes in Los Angeles and New York City. So just the conception of what a wife was entitled to when leaving a successful man. It just, really is a saga of it, trashy divorces, it really, isn't it? It changes. So <laughs> obituaries for Johnny Carson poured forth in '05, as you would expect. I mean, again, living legend, icon, all of it. The New York Times, describing his often pointed jokes, wrote, quote, All these oddments were sliced and diced so neatly, so politely, so unmaliciously, with so much alacrity that even the stuffiest conservative Republicans found themselves almost smiling at Mr. Carson's Nixon-Agnew jokes, and uptight doctrinaire liberal Democrats savored his pokes at Lyndon B. Johnson and the Kennedys. Members of the public couldn't say whether they were on Johnny Carson's side or he was on theirs. All they knew was they liked him and felt they knew him, a claim most of those who were close to him in his life, including his wives, family, and tonight's staff members, would not make with much
1: confidence wow yeah what a Um, what a yeah
0: yeah 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 he was almost a recluse who every star and prominent person knew and who almost every american considered a cherished friend he elevated careers we discussed roseanne's long road to sudden stardom from her tonight show appearance last season and for the decades that bridged the, like the three-network era of television into the cable television era. Like he read America, it's bedtime story four nights a week. I will always love Johnny Carson, in spite of his train wreck of a personal life and his constant cheating. So I'm going to give him three increasingly generous trash cans wrapped in a homemade cape his mother sewed. Back at the tail end of the Great Depression. And That is my score for Johnny Carson.
1: Perfect. <laughs> I don't know. I mean... No, there really is a reconciliation point that I think is done inside all of us. It's like, how do you counter the accomplishments or the contributions of one person against whatever kind of personal trash baggery yeah. they may have in their own personal little... Little trash can soul there over some. a lifetime. Mm-hmm. Like we hope we're judged by our best day. That is not what this
0: podcast is about. This podcast <laughs> is about the
1: worst days. Stacy, that was a hell of a story. I didn't know any of that. I knew that very was amazing. Little, little Thank cape, you.
0: little cape, little mom sewing little cape for little
1: scrawny little boy. Pretty much the best thing I've heard yeah. in a long time on Trashy Divorces. I was
0: uh I, I kind of teared up a little bit when I read that and thought about it. It was great. It's
1: okay. Magic cape of many colors. Okay. So, but now we should probably take a break. Quick break. Coming back on the flip. Mm. Putting another nickel in the machine with the Trashy Divorces arc of Ava Gardner.
0: I may visit the mimosa bar. <laughs> hey, Trash Pandas. When you need a brain break from your day, let me recommend the game June's Journey for Android and iPhone. It's a hidden object mystery game where you are solving a murder, uncovering family secrets, and, I don't know, exposing official corruption? All in an extremely stylish 1920s setting. Every scene takes you deeper into the mystery and introduces you to an expansive cast of characters as June Parker explores the questions surrounding her sister's apparent murder-suicide at the family's beachfront estate. Add your own elements to the island from lush gardens to gorgeous new buildings. This story has so many twists and turns. Right now, we are on a global journey attempting to rescue June's niece, Virginia. It's a great combo of gameplay. It's a memory puzzle, a design project, an intriguing storyline with genuinely fabulous art. When you want to let your mind wander, relax into this glorious 1920s murder mystery and get lost in the fun. Discover your inner detective when you download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. Okay, I will not lie to our listeners, I did have a mimosa.
1: (laughs) I had a mimosa, too. Yeah, so
0: this is going to go great. (laughs) You've got big, big Hollywood names here, like, although I don't know much about them, so I'm looking forward to a highly educational experience. I have got a
1: firecracker. Of a story for you today. Ba-boom. And a life well lived. Uh, Ava Gardner, three marriages, three up, three down. Great beauty, unfulfilled loves. She always ends up with the wrong guy. (laughs) Bad picker. She has a picker who believes in the wrong things at the wrong time. That's for sure. Wonderful. I've got the story of the first two for you today. So I'm using a lot of the narrative I've written directly from her autobiography called Ava, My Story. The link is on our website. It is a hell of a book. Like you feel like you're sitting down and just listening to Ava in words. It is a remarkable autobiography. Strong recommend. Ava, Lavinia Gardner, was born on Christmas Eve, 1922. She's the baby of the family. She's the last of seven kids born to the gardeners. Ava is her mom's middle-aged surprise. Her mom is 39 when Ava's born. Dad is a tenant tobacco farmer. They live in North Carolina in a town called Grab Town. <laughs> Grab town which isn't even big enough to really be a town. It's not on the map. But... Sounds like a lot of towns in the South, even today. It's a poor childhood, at least when it comes to wealth, but rich in love, family stuff, super close family, not a lot of cash. Ava is going to be close to her family in ways that some stars won't be throughout their life. She will always stay connected to her roots, even though she will travel the world to find her happiness. So Ava's born on Christmas Eve. And she has some thoughts about this. The first is that that makes her a Capricorn. Ava writes, And wouldn't it be just my luck to be born a Capricorn? I have always thought of it as the worst sign, but no matter. It wasn't my style to let a little thing like the stars get in the way. (laughs) Number two of being a Christmas Eve baby. Ava knew she deserved two presents. But like all kids with a holiday birthday, (laughs) and especially in a poor family, that wasn't going to happen. She writes, after figuring out that she's not going to receive two presents, and the news just got worse. (laughs) It appeared that there was this whole other person, Jesus Christ, whose birthday a lot of other people tended to confuse with mine. I was personally outraged. It was a long time before I forgave the Lord for that. (laughs) I love it. So you're saying she's headstrong, even as a youth. A little bit. A little bit. So back to grab town. Mm. The Gardner family let's, home is... Let's
0: not go back to grab
1: town. <laughs> The Gardner family home is humble. Like, there's no indoor plumbing. Rich in love, no pipes. So all this town really is that isn't even on the map is a community of people working together farming tobacco land. It's that small and everyone's working together in the fields, black, white. It's a system that everyone participates in. Everybody's in it together. Mama and Ava are super close. And remember, Ava's the baby. Mama and Ava love movies and they really love Clark Gable. But Mama kind of demands a Victorian standard. There's no messing around. And within her family structure, Ava's very obedient No messing around. Uh, But when she's not in Mama's reach, woo, she will take any dare. She cusses, she drinks, she causes trouble, climbs the water tower. Mom does catch her kissing a boy on the porch one night, Uh and all hell breaks loose. Mm -hmm. There is no premarital messing around. Um, Also, Ava Gardner is pretty much barefoot all the time. And I get this because they're just foot prisons, Shoes are bonds, and I don't like them. Foot tunics. I support the Barefoot Contessa in all of this. You
0: need chainmail foot tunics. You are so accident-prone.
1: I hate shoes. Okay. A fire burns down the family farm. Oh, no. The family moves to Virginia. Dad's health has taken a turn, and he's going to die at the age of 59 in 1938. Ava's like 15 and in the grief of this, the family's moving again. And by 18, Ava's like, yep, I can be a secretary and then a wife and a mother and it's a good life and it's perfectly fine. Ava, if she had an inside wish, is to be singing with a band. She is in love with bands from an early age. She loves the big bands and the orchestra and the uh, she's into that whole scene and this is going to get her into a little bit of heat in her life but uh she really is a terrific singer she says if you're half irish and half scottish and you can't sing there must be something wrong with you the life she's planned as a secretary is uh more than likely a little bit more humble than what she is going to get so let's see what happens
0: yeah how does one go from
1: the dream of secretary school to Hollywood stardom? An 18 year old Ava makes it up to the big city in 1940. It's very exciting. Which big city? New York. That city. big city. All right. And her sister, Bappy, she has an older sister. It's the oldest of the siblings. She's whatever, 20 years older than Ava. She's significantly older, but kind of second mom. Bappy is married to a photographer, and it's 1940. Gone with the Wind is all the rage, and he takes photos of Ava in this, like, big hat get-up looking mm, all kinds of scarlet. Sure, and, Holy cats. Yeah. If the camera doesn't love her. So he takes these pics, he puts them up in the shop window, and one day a scout for MGM is wandering by. MGM, who has more stars than in all the heavens... And the MGM scouts are like we gotta test this kid, so brouhaha and the family. The next break, mom and Ava head on up for the test, and they go see the guy who is like the the pre-screen for Ava, who cannot understand anything Ava is saying because her accent is that thick. Mm-hmm. And he's like, "Tut tut, no matter. We'll just do a visual test. There'll be no talking." and mom and ava show up the so next day. Good thing silent films were all the rage. I <laughs> know, I know. It's I know, not, but I know. We'll just we'll just see
0: how she does on camera. Sure. Diction lessons will do. Like we we can fix this.
1: So, mom and ava show up the next day and Ava walks and places these flowers on the table and says a few words, but sweet lord, if there is not an angle the camera does not love this girl from. Like there is photogenic, and there is photogenic in Ava Gardner. Like, whoa. No, it's, it again, it, with like with Johnny Carson, it's just that unquantifiable thing that some people have. Well, by the end of this nonsense, she doesn't think she does that great, but she signed for $50 a month to MGM <sighs> for like seven years or $50 a week. And this is all fine and good in New York City. Like, they have her on a lease. She can't sign with anyone else. It's fine when she's in New York. But the opportunity is that her test gets sent to Hollywood and the Hollywood guy sees it. And he's like, you need to get that kid out here right now. And mama is a hard no. Mama is nobody. This is not going to happen. Like, you're not taking my baby to California. And Bappy's like, mom, maybe you're being a little too hasty about this. I'll go with her. I'll protect her. I'll make sure it's legit. And that's... Once mom sees the screen test, she's like, all right, Bappy, do it. Because all through this time, what Bappy knows and what Ava will soon find out is that mom is real sick. This is a terrible story so far. Terrible story. So off Ava and Bappy go. Hollywood. Can you imagine being a hit kid from a hit town now in Hollywood What that would have looked like in 1941. Not even a little bit.
0: I also like going from rural North Carolina in the 30s to New
1: York City. I mean. Mind blowing. Yeah. So Ava writes, I had less than no experience. I didn't know anything about anything, but part of me had no doubt I would end up a movie queen. And even if I didn't, I certainly didn't have a hell of a lot to lose. She's off and running. She's on the lot. She's getting lessons on diction and poise and everything else. They need to teach a hit kid to be a star. And Ava's going to take this in for a long time is, why do you want to change me? Like she's super malleable. Like she's taking direction from the studio. She wants to be a movie star, but she takes it super hard and the damage of the want of the change for her from the studio, like takes a hit on her psyche, but it's all happening. And one day it just so happens that MGM's number one star, 20 year old Mickey Rooney, who that day is dressed up in a comedy bit is a way less pretty. Carmen Miranda sees young Ava Gardner and he has to have her. Okay. So Mickey Rooney hubby number one in Ava's story. She is his wife number one as well he will go on to have seven more wives in his life but that's a whole another arc for a whole another day this is ava's story but it is good to mention here that mickey rooney is a virgo he has also been acting pretty much since birth his parents are vaudeville stars he made his film debut at the age of six In 1941, when he meets Ava, he is making $5,000 a week and is one of the most famous men in America.
0: Yeah, I mean, I don't, I just, because I I know him as... An old man, right? Like, these people had careers for decades Oh, he before.
1: was the biggest star in the world.
0: He's got, like, he's got a wonderful smile, but he is not, like, a conventionally attractive dude. Like, it's interesting. Sinatra's the same. Sinatra was not a pretty young man. It's really, like, it's been strange, kind of going back through these old pictures, being like,
1: how did these people become the Hang pinnacles? Okay. So it just takes one look. And Mickey is hooked on Ava. Ava, can I get your number? No. Please. (laughs) No. He breaks her down. He gets her number. He calls her. Can I take you to dinner? No. (laughs) This goes on for a while. And her sister Bappy's like, make him work for it, honey. Like, (sighs) go for it. So they do end up going to dinner and a handful of dates. And Ava writes, at first, Mickey's shortness kind of stunned me. Like, he seriously is Mm -hmm. a ton of inches shorter than her. But she continues. He was charming, romantic, and great fun. And I began to miss him when he wasn't around. I was raised in a southern temperature, and Mickey had so much speed, it was dazzling. Mm -hmm. Okay. So speaking of speed... After the fallout of mama catching Ava on the porch kissing. Oh,
0: sure, sure.
1: Mickey is soon gonna find out that Ava is not fast to fall in the sack. It just isn't going to happen. Right. Completely inexperienced and from a good southern family. (laughs) So after like five dates, Mickey is beside himself. Beside himself, and he's like, Let's get married. He asks her on the daily, sometimes multiple times a day, to marry him. He's head over heels in love with her, and she is a hard no on premarital sex. And Mickey never hears the no. He just keeps asking to marry her. And he's persistent and young. And sweet 18-year-old Ava is in the dazzling energy of Mickey, and she finally gives in. She says, I'll do it when I turn 19. Wow. She meets his mom. Who, upon meeting Ava, pretty much says, so he hasn't been able to get into your pants yet. Yikes. Ava's mortified. Like, I cannot believe this, but she does have a word about mother-in-laws. Ava gets along marvelously with Mickey's mom. Ava's super impressed at her breadth of cuss words. She's like, (sighs) she knew more cuss words than everybody I grew up with together. She was amazing.
0: And again, this is,
1: she's from a vaudeville... Correct. Yeah, so, okay. But what a different world, you know, Ava is also going to get along with her next two mother in laws. She says they were all strong, assertive women. And if I had only gotten along with their sons half as well. Oh,
0: my God. But I what digress. A lovely.
1: I mean, to be able to look back on that and. Yeah, have that, you know. Okay, so Mickey and Ava are in love, and Ava's like, sure, I'll do it when I'm 19, but of course they have to get the permission of the big boss. Oh, Louis B. Mayor, Louis B., which Mickey does. So there's kind of an awkward Ava in Louis B.'s office where, his, where Louis B.'s secretary is kind of mean. So Louis B.'s secretary is remembering Ava's test where Ava comes in, and the secretary asks her at that time, What's more important to you, your career or love? And Country Hick Ava, my career of co And here's Ava, like, oh months, immediately, months, months in, later, yeah, marrying the number one star on the, and all of this is going through both of their minds. And the secretary says, uh, a leopard doesn't change its spots. And Ava feels kind of shitty about it, but alas, Mickey emerges in January 10th, 1942 mickey rooney and ava gardner mary and now the whole thing is an mgm production oh sure of course right the honeymoon happens and they finally get there but there's a handler with them and mickey mostly is playing golf all day like his vices are booze betting and babes and not necessarily in that order And you didn't think that being married was going to stop him from doing all the things he liked to do, did you? So he wants to party. And Ava has this whole different ideal growing up with her parents of what a marriage is. And she's like, I want to stay home and cook and let's be a married couple. And neither one of them has set proper expectations. It's going to go badly pretty quickly. About two months in, Ava's <laughs> appendix ruptures. Oh, God. And she's rushed to the hospital where she gets appendicized and drugged up. So she yeah. comes home all kinds of druggy and happy. And she realizes that Mickey has been entertaining babes oh, in her no, bed and no. in her bathroom. Not cool, Mickey. Not cool. So Ava is a firm like doesn't believe in cheating. Which is a little ironic, but she writes, I don't cheat and I don't want nobody cheating on me. In those days, Ava was pretty trusting and she is shattered by the revelation. That- I'm
0: sure. I'm sure. Because where she came from, I mean, you just, you don't do people like that.
1: I mean, you do, but it's very discreet. So does the secretary's warning make a little bit more sense about a leopard not changing his spots? So Ava will write that neither of them were ready for marriage. We had no idea that marriage involved a meeting of the minds. He wasn't ready for it. She says she doesn't blame Mickey Rooney for the breakup. Quote, he was just made the way he was. And I didn't find out until it was too late that I wasn't the right girl for him. So they're kind of on and off and there are rows and reconciliations. But it all falls out one night when a very drunken Mickey Rooney... Is getting riled by all of his friends at a table. Take out your black book, man. But Ava's sitting right there next to him. Mm. And Mickey does. And then Ava is not there sitting right next to him. She's done. One year and five days after that marriage took place, marriage number one is finito. Ava pays for her lawyer. Waves the claim on half of his estate, takes $25,000 in boogies. This does not mean... That
0: is a ton of money at that time, though.
1: Right, 1943?
0: Like, yeah, 25K. Yeah. yeah, it's a ton of money.
1: They will still liaise in the sack now and then over the next few years, but the marriage, if not their love, is done. Um, The... The love forever in the ring he gave her they got married with, it was engraved love forever. Love forever is busted, and the divorce yeah. decree is granted May 21st, 1943.
0: I mean, is it part of a math equation where forever equals one year and five days? <laughs> <laughs> so adding
1: to the sadness... Love, lowercase x. <laughs> no, this is sad. We'd gotten happy, but we're about to get sad again. Because okay. the same day the divorce decree is granted is the day that Ava's mom dies. God damn. What a up and down set of years here. Ava writes, "We'd expected it. We knew it was going to happen, but sure. that didn't make it any easier." No, no. You can get over pain, loneliness, disappointment, and love, but you can never get over grief. That lasts forever. So Ava's single. She's 20. She's working at MGM. Oh, She's my in God. Hollywood. And she also, like, really begins to take up drinking. (laughs) It (laughs) relaxes her fear of insecurity, calms her nerves. Uh, Being half Irish and half Scottish, not only can she sing, but she can hold her liquor, too. So between 1941 and 1946, the five years that will encompass the beginning of her first marriage to the end of her second marriage, Ava's going to be in 17 films. Yikes. So very
0: busy busy very like professionally important okay
1: i mean none of them are necessarily some of them are good some of them are memorable some of them are
0: not no but how many people are sitting around hollywood not constantly working a lot there are a
1: lot of awesome resources where you can learn about all of her films during that time period this is not the podcast for that (laughs) ava also in this time begins a friendship with howard hughes a relationship that will last 20 years that really is something. We've heard about Howard and we'll hear about him again. I'm going to be dissecting all of the Howard and Ava mess between the two of them on Patreon shortly. But we're here for the trashy divorces. So let's get to husband number two, Artie Shaw.
0: Big band leader?
1: Yep. Okay. Artie Shaw's is 12 years older. Gemini man. And when he meets Ava, old Artie, band leader genius musician intellectual and perfectionist to boot has made it through 4 of what will be his total of 8 marriages <laughs> should there be a law like y- you get 5 beyond that we're just
0: we're not going to go through the legal process with you anymore you you may not file for anything
1: at this point why do you think this episode is one for my baby <laughs> one for the road dude <sighs> okay so it's worth a mention here and a little segue into the beauty and grace that is all of Lana Turner. Lana Turner, you see, was Artie Shaw's wife number three, which was not the lucky charm. Artie was Lana's starter husband, though. Artie was Lana's first husband. Number one for her of what will be a total of eight marriages. These were early days for Lana. Their marriage begins February thirteenth, nineteen forty. Okay, but Mickey Rooney also had eight. Yep. So we've got twenty-four marriages
0: between these three. We're not people. done, babe. Just. Oh no, I know. I'm yeah. just. Oh, I'm and Johnny Car- marveling. Oh. Twenty-four. Pour pour another divorce <laughs> in the yeah seriously, Cup in, the, Joe. in the shaker
1: yeah dude it's crazy okay, they elope. February 13th, 1940. And MGM is pissed because they didn't get permission. Yeah, Yeah, you got to ask the king. They're done in a few months. Like by September of that year, they're fizzled out. Because you see, Artie Shaw has this fun thing where he has subjected Lana to some pretty significant verbal abuse, as well as giving her a college education according to Artie Shaw. It's kind of the same thing F. Scott Fitzgerald did with Sheila Graham. Okay. Like, I'm going to teach you. All right. <laughs> How to live. <laughs> it's apparently Artie's thing with the young broads. Lana files from divorce for Artie Shaw, quote, on the grounds that the marriage was based on no relationship, just the heat of the moonlight, unquote. Lana and Artie are wrapped within a year, but hang tight. Lana's going to go on to hubby number two, Joseph Stephen Crane, in 1942. He's a restaurant owner. And Lana is soon pregnant with what will be her only child, Cheryl. Totally flipping the script here. Adjacent to our trashier Tudor people, Lana has inherited the rhesus negative gene.
0: Oh, RH. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The
1: RH negative factor. Her grandmother has died in childbirth. It skips Lana's mom. But when Lana's daughter Cheryl is born, Cheryl is given a complete blood transfusion to survive. And Lana, after this and saving the baby and everything's great and I have a hubby and a child, Lana finds out that Stephen Crane's divorce, which he got in Mexico, his Mexico divorce, was not at all legal in the oh. second marriage that they have is an old but in a move that is going to come back around again in this season, Steven attempts suicide and Lana takes him back and his divorce is finally settled out. And Lana and Steven remarry only for this time for it only to last a year. And that splitsville too. Why the hell do I bring any of that up? Because it is all such trash candy and Lana Turner is going to be our feature on oceans 11 this week. All the dish about her first marriage to Artie Shaw, with all the trash candy second helping centering on the child of that marriage, Cheryl Crane, and Cheryl's quote, shooting and murder of. Lana Turner's lover, Johnny Stompanato, in 1958. I have heard true crime podcasts about this. Oh, friends. This is everything good is happening on Ocean's Eleven this week. Lana Turner is sheer magic with so much glittery trash candy. Tune into that one. You don't want to miss it. But it's worth dropping the Lana and Artie connection in there. And we are covering her magic this week on Patreon. Okay. Okay. Back to the story. (laughs) Ava and Artie. Remember Ava and her big band thing? She likes the band and the orchestra. All right. She dreamed of singing in a band. Back in humble North Carolina. So Artie is back from the war. They get introduced one night and proceed to literally have a date every night. Every single night. They are hooked. And one night at Lucy's, a small Italian joint across from RKO Studios, Artie says to her, Ava. I think that physically, emotionally, and mentally, you are the most perfect woman I've ever met. I would marry you tonight, except for the fact I've married too many wives already. They spend the first eight months dating every single day, every single night with not a lot of funny business. They're really just getting to know each other. And they decide to have an affair. She moves into his mock tutor home on Bedford Drive in Beverly Hills. And their love affair is magic. She's with him and he's hanging with the band and everything's great. And sometimes maybe that's just where you should keep it. But these two don't. They do get married October 17th, 1945. This is wife number five for him, hubby number two for her. Here's the thing you need to know is Artie's kind of a dick. He, much like Lana, wants to improve Ava. So he's pulling this like, Henry Higgins thing in My Fair Lady. He wants to make Ava his Galatea. And sure, he's introducing her to a new world of art and literature and politics and psychology. But like, he is making her work for it. Read this. Learn this. Study this. Look at this. Mm -hmm. eh. Yeah. Okay. So up until that point, Ava says, I'd read Gone with the Wind. So now Artie Shaw comes in making this whole education for her. And one day he gets angry. He throws a book across the room one night because he sees what she's reading. He catches her reading this little book called Forever Amber, written by a lady named Kathleen Windsor. Her story is amazing and a follow-up in Trashy Tidbits, but I need you to know that Forever Amber was super trashy in its day. The 972-page novel... Provides a romp through Restoration England and is so salacious, it is banned for its sexual references. It's porn in like 14 states. It's condemned by the Hayes office. But that doesn't stop Hollywood from buying the movie rights for the film that will be released in 1947. It is one of the best-selling novels of the 1940s, selling over 3 million copies. It sells 100,000 copies in its first week.
0: Never heard of it.
1: Forever Amber. Oh, it's trash. So Forever Amber is not on Artie's approved list for Ava's reading. But old Sigmund Freud is. So that's cool. And the first book Artie will give her is Psycho. Okay, so Artie then wants to take Ava to a psychoanalyst. Hmm. And Ava goes, which is fine. But while she's there, she insists on getting an IQ test. And Artie's like, we don't need to do that. And Ava's like, no, I'd really like to do that. And it turns out she's bright as hell. She's just a hick kid from a hick town. And this little piece of knowledge burns her to enroll in some classes at UCLA. Artie wants her to be able to play chess. So he brings in a Russian chess master to teach Ava. And Artie and Ava play chess a lot until she beats them once And Uh, then they do not play chess again. Yeah, I was, yeah, okay. Okay. So 1946 is rolling along fine, but Ava ends up getting a little suspicious when Artie sells the mock Tudor Victorian in Beverly Hills. Oh, and why would he do that? Well, he ends up buying this crap place in the valley.
0: Uh, And better, uh,
1: What, what would prompt such behavior? Yeah, the Marital Division of Assets and Property in the state of California. Artie's prepping to get, like, yeah. Artie's prepping to GTFO. Advanced divorce planning, I believe this yep. is called today. And Ava's like, you have got to be kidding me. You have moved me into a fucking rat trap in the valley. Yeah. She's out. She needs yeah.
0: out. Yeah, she's Ava Gardner. She does not need to be, she's not Charles Dickens as a boy fighting <laughs> off rats while he applies stickers to boot black.
1: Tries to eat porridge. <laughs> so one day, like a little while later, Artie calls her. And Ava's like, you know, Artie's like, hey, can you come down to my office? And Ava's like, oh, thank God, he's finally come to his senses. So she dresses don't up don't all know, pretty. no, Ava, you're visiting him at work. She gets there. He does not pull out the chair. Mm. He does instead pull out the question of, uh, hey, do you mind if I go to Mexico and get a quickie divorce? Wow. Wow. And Ava's like. Has he never heard of Alabama? <laughs> Ava's so stunned. yeah she's just like yeah that's fine so that was it for ava and artie so the marriage has lasted just like her marriage number one a year and a week are you
0: kidding me
1: nope both marriages a few years apart like one year and one week that sucks it's been a year and a week since you divorced me i don't know she pays again for her own divorce and this she asked for nothing and pretty much left with, like, I'm done with your brain experiments, mister. Yeah. Hold on. Here's the trashy twist for the story that you don't even see coming. Artie's going to take a new bride a week after the divorce is final from Ava. You want to guess who his new wife is? Elizabeth Taylor. Wife number six is Kathleen Windsor, the author of fucking oh my Forever God. Amber.
0: <sighs> nope. Didn't see that coming. Okay.
1: Wow. I can't make it up. Nope. Okay. Artie, seriously, I'm not a fan, literally writes a fiction book with the title of I Love You, I Hate You, Drop Dead Variations on a Theme. I, Artie Shaw. (sighs) Ava will say that Artie was a deep hurt to her. She loved him so much, but that whole pretty pupil routine wasn't cool. She says, I was never an equal. I was never given the dignity of being a wife. I thought at the time that love could cure anything. I found out the hard way it can't. You have to have more in common than mad love for a marriage to work. Unfortunately, that seems true. Yeah. Truer words have never been spoken. And that's a whole episode of trashy divorces. And that's where we're going to leave Ava for now. We all know what is coming. Her marriage to Frank. That's an episode in the future. When it comes to trash cans, I don't know. Mickey Rooney gets a whole hospital room full of neon trash cans. Don't cheat on your wife when she's in a hospital bed, dude. Artie Shaw, he gets a whole orchestra stand full of trash cans, but they're all judgmental and telling you what to read. (laughs) That's the trashy divorces arc. Of Mickey and Ava and Artie with the little Lana Turner cupcake thrown into boot. Sure. Boom. Yeah, I'll allow it. Well. One for I, my baby, one for the road. I
0: mean, I don't want to say that's a great story because it's actually a really sad story in so many ways, but uh, a lot there. Good story.
1: Oh, Ava just... A life well-lived and one an art. Like, we're not done. We're, no, we're but in, I mean, these... We, we're at the end of part one the, of Ava. Yeah,
0: these formative years, like losing both of her parents in, you know, reasonably short order. And then ending up in the land of sharks. So... The spider web has
1: been cast. Yeah. Y'all, a lot of fun stuff coming for you onto the Trash Candy Universe this week on Patreon. Consider supporting your favorite indie podcasters over there for more. We're them. We're your favorite indie podcasters. We we hope. Thank you, everybody, for tuning in. Thanks to our new patrons. We will be back next week with some more hot, fresh trash candy. We will. Until then, y'all are the best. Keep it trashy. Oh, keep it so trashy. But not as trashy as the 32-plus marriages and divorces mentioned today. Yeah,
0: no kidding. Ugh.
1: Yeah, one for my baby, one for the road. Maybe is taken a little too literally in this case. All right, that's all. All right. Keep it trashy. Keep it trashy. Bye y'all. Bye. And thanks to you for listening. Trashy Divorces is a Hemlock Creatives production, created and produced right here in Atlanta, Georgia by us, Stacy and Alicia. With a little research and writing help from the brilliant Melissa O. Our art is by Sydney V. Smith. That's Sydney V.
0: Smith at CarbonMade.com. And our music is used with permission of Ratsy. Check her out at Ratsy's Store on Instagram.